That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Matt Ho joins us now. Matt, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. You you and I have discussed at length your view uh, in which you argued persuasively before October 7th that the Ukraine war was the most propagandized uh, in the modern era. When you made those arguments, what did you mean by that? I, the full weight, the, the, the volume, the resources uh, available to pushing the narratives of the war. Because uh, this applies also to the Russian side as well. It's just not the Ukraine, Western, NATO, American side. was just such uh, a, 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 an overwhelming wave of information on people that it, it it was unlike anything we had seen before. Uh, it, the way it was not just uh, 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 how forceful it was, but how how concerted, how, how how concerted, coordinated, how deliberate it was, and in, I think in many cases planned as well. You don't have the same view now that it's the most propagandized view in the modern era in light of what has happened from and after October seventh. Yeah, I, I think we had that conversation, Judge, on uh, you know September 30th or October 1st, right? So we, uh, whatever uh, pronouncements I made were quickly undone by the events that came from, uh, you know, uh, and, and what we see now is something even greater than that because it ties into very real uh, political and cultural phenomenons that have existed in the U.S. and the West for decades. So whereas uh, the propaganda campaign in the United States for the Ukraine war uh, depended in large part on the Democratic Party's demonization of Russia and Vladimir Putin connection, you know, trying to connect it to, to Donald Trump and the Republican Party, et cetera. So that had a big impact on the propaganda for the Ukrainian war. What we're seeing with what's occurring in Israel and Palestine goes back even farther, is even deeper, has very real roots within American society from which it can draw, from which it can play upon emotions and it connects even on a spiritual level with people. So this, what we're seeing with this propaganda uh, campaign for this war uh, really is unlike anything I think we've ever seen in our history, has a lot to do with technology, uh, you know, certainly social media, the fact that everyone has uh, cell phones and can record video and everything else. However, it also has to do with some very real, deep social uh, uh, 
uh, and religious and spiritual connections that ha people have. And those social, religious, and spiritual connections are, are basically American domestic politics uh, and the influence of the Jewish people in American uh, domestic politics, which has resulted in a propaganda campaign even more one-sided, as you view it, correct me if I'm wrong, than what we witnessed uh, in Ukraine. Of course, we don't witness anymore. Ukraine's more or less forgotten about it. I don't know what Victoria Newland is thinking, but she's not speaking out. It, and I think the White House is happy that that Ukraine has has largely disappeared from the media conversation uh, because it helps get them out of of out of that that hole, basically. All right. Hold uh, the question. They, hold the question that I asked you and I'll, I'll restate it for you. Let's spend just a little bit of time on Ukraine before we get to the propaganda campaign here uh, in the U.S., do your sources tell you that either the White House or NATO or Western Europe or some of them uh, have recognized the inevitable finally in Ukraine? Yes, uh, absolutely. And we've seen this in reporting. Um, we, we've seen this in uh, uh, reports of the United States approaching its allies to discuss uh, peace plans uh, to discuss uh, potential uh, uh, negotiations. Uh, what would Ukraine have to give up to settle this thing and put this thing behind us? Uh, I think there there uh, was a faction uh, in a very strong, uh, deliberate, uh, uh, well uh, uh, well grounded faction in the sense of people like Tony Blinken and Victoria Newland who saw the war in Ukraine as uh, an extension of their ideological pursuits, right? right? Their extension, that this was all part of, of uh, the wars like this are going to occur when you are the indispensable nature. You are going to have to go forth and defeat monsters. You're going to have to confront tyranny. You're going to have to defend liberty. Uh, you know, all that, all that nonsense, all that dangerous, dangerous nonsense. And <laughs> I think uh, that, those narratives, those tropes, uh, that hi emotional hyperbole produce these types of, 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 of policies. Uh, also too, this is the nature of empire. When you're an empire, you are forced to make decisions, make, make choices to, uh, maintain and defend the empire as well as try and expand it. And so what we see, I think are just culminations of bad choices, bad decisions because of the consequences of previous ones. And so now you're at the point where you have run out where there is absolutely nothing left you can do. You're literally running out of money to support this. And so I think that the, the reality is setting on even those who are so fervent in their beliefs. That oh, but what, what, do they do, what do they do or say now that A, the money is running out because B, I don't think the House of Representatives controlled by Republicans is going to give Joe Biden another dime for Ukraine. Uh, and see what what do they say? These people live in the world of uh, of molding popular opinion. Uh, they created a, a disaster, a monumental, catastrophic disaster that cost the American public 113 billion and cost the Ukraines a half a million young men's lives. What can they say? Well, they they can distract, right? So thankfully for them, they have this war in Gaza which is incredibly unpopular among the American people, as we see with recent more, more with more public opinion polling that has come out, but they can distract with that. So they can, they can choose to push one unpopular war instead of another unpopular war. They can pretend it's not happening 
And I think they're very happy to see the fact that, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, not talking about the war in Ukraine. I get the feeling that it's that those networks are not receiving telephone calls from American viewers asking them, where is the coverage? So I think the White House is happy to see that as well. And, and then the, the other aspect is they can always just double down. They can always just misrepresent. They can always just pretend that something else happened. So whereas this was a complete catastrophe for the Ukrainian people, the way it will be spun by the White House, by the DNC, by the president's reelection campaign is that uh, we stood up to Vladimir Putin. We met tyranny and we stopped it. We prevented Putin from marching further west. Poland and Germany and France are safe because of us, you know, so they'll spin it in a way that they still come out as the heroes of our age. How one sided is and now now we're going to get to Israel and Hamas. How one sided is the propaganda campaign from the government or from private media? I mean, media not owned by the government uh, here in the U.S. and generally in the West. Well, we, we have some statistical analysis that shows exactly that, how how uh, how the bias is 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 very real. And it, it, it's it's almost overpowering when you look at the numbers. And this comes from a journalist named Adam Johnson, who, uh, among other things, has a substack called The Column. And I would encourage people to go and, and look at that. Uh, but what the statistical analysis finds is that over the over the period of a month from October 7th to November 7th uh, on the big three cable news networks. Uh, right, here, hang on a second. Here's the chart that you gave us. So what are we looking at, Matt? What are the numbers going up and down on the left? And what are the numbers going left to right on the bottom? So yeah, the vertical axis is the number of mentions in a 30 second spot by CNN Fox and embassy MSNBC over a 30 day period, October 7th or a month period, October 7th through November 7th. Um, the num numbers on the bottom are the dates. It starts October dates, 8 correct. and it goes to November 8th. Correct. And the line that the darker line, the top line is the, is the mentions of Israelis and the lighter blue line, the lower line is the mentions of Palestinians. So you can see, see starting October 7th, the number of times that MSNBC, CNN, and Fox mention Israelis or mention Palestinians, you can certainly see the disparity. And for, uh, you know, if you look at the actual numbers, it comes out to a disparity of basically five to one. So for every time a pal Palestinians are mentioned by the big three cable news networks, Israelis are mentioned five times. So the, the mentions... The mentions of the Israelis are positive for the Israelis. The mention, and correct me if I'm wrong, the mentions of the Palestinians are positive for Palestinians. It's just five to one on these major networks, one of which is my former employer for 24 years. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Right. It's just a question of even talking about them. So if you look at it, it comes out to roughly 83% of the time that this war is being discussed, the Israelis are the ones who are being spoken about. So whether it's what the Israeli military is doing, what the Israeli government is doing, what the Israeli people have endured, what they suffered, et cetera, the hostages, you know, and only about 17% of the time are the 11,000 plus Palestinians who have been killed being mentioned. What's important too, that that what they go into in this is how they're talked about. How How are they, how are they talked about? Well, you know, there's a real disparity in in terms of, you know, words matter, right? Right. So um, when you hear about the deaths that occur there, uh, say the word massacre, they looked at how often is the word massacre used to describe what is occurring uh, in uh, Israel and Palestine. And what they found was that over this period of time, uh, the news networks use massacre to describe what had that happened to the Israelis 1,655 times, while only 78 times was the word massacre used to describe what was occurring to the Palestinians. So that's 21 times as much the Israelis are, be, are described of having endured massacres as have the Palestinians. Um, you know, so the descriptive words, though, uh, you also see are, what is this one here? Israelis are mentioned more than Palestinians every day on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. This remained the case even as Palestinian deaths began to far outpace Israeli deaths. Right. And what you see there on this graph, too, is just exactly that that uh, even as coverage drops of this conflict, of this war, even as the the networks after two or three weeks start to talk about it less, that disparity remains in terms of Israelis being spoken about, Palestinians not being mentioned. You know, one of the things about the massacre thing as well, I want to get back to when, when that term is used, they looked at how language is used when using the word massacre. And very often, the uh, newscasters would say very definitively in very determinative language regarding the Israelis, this was a massacre. While very often with the Palestinians, it was the words used were things like what the Palestinians are calling a massacre. The Palestinians are saying it's a massacre. So okay. you see just even in, in the way the language is used, it. the way it's right, that Got there it. is there is a bias there as well. The Israelis were massacred. The Palestinians say that they are massacred, meaning that, you know, th- that may not be true. Uh, you know, it, but you see it as well, too, like uh, uh, in terms of when you get into to some of the more sensitive things, the things that, that really horrify us and sicken us and aggrieve us, such as the children. And there are 30 Israeli, roughly 30 Israeli children killed on October 7th. Absolutely horrible. During the date in the data set they had here, they looked up until October 27th on terms of how the children were spoke were spoken about. And at that point, 3000 Palestinian children have been killed. Uh, and you can see that almost the mention, though, of Israeli child deaths 
compared to Palestinian child deaths, it's almost two to one. So almost twice mm -hmm. as often did the newscasters talk about 30 Israeli children okay. being killed. Okay. What, what is yeah? What is the effect of this one-sided reporting on the war itself? Well, it, you know, it, the, the effect is meant to shape the discussion. It's meant to shape public opinion, right? I mean, one other thing you can look at that they pull out is, is the words that are used to describe how the children were killed. And when they're talking about Israeli children being killed, they use the word atrocity five times more often. They use the word slaughter 15 times more often. Uh, and in the children themselves, uh, only, you know, more than two and a half times Israeli children are called innocent as the Palestinian children are. And that's all meant to shape the debate, to, to set the windows of the parameter for how we discuss this, how we view this, and ultimately how our government responds. But what we've seen is that it has not been effective, that this propaganda campaign has been shown through public opinion polls, first with the public opinion polls from the week of around October 20th, uh, to a Reuters poll that was just released yesterday. That how, how have the polls changed? Well, the polls, actually, the polls have not changed very much. Uh, and, you know, so uh, a few weeks ago, the polls showed that 66 percent of Americans were in favor of a ceasefire, while uh, you have polls of this week showing 68 percent of Americans supporting ceasefire, which is, is a large majority, particularly when you look at the way the war has been framed by the media, as well as the way that our political leaders are responding. You look at this this march for Israel that occurred this past week in Washington, D.C., where you had uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, many other Democrats and Republicans up there in front of a crowd chanting no ceasefire, pledging to give Israel everything it needs to finish Gaza. And, you know, so just completely out of step, the dissonance between what our political leaders are saying and what the American public is saying is 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 vast. It's very wide. But so the, just, new, the new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who is is what he calls himself a Christian nationalist. Uh, when he was asked about the ceasefire, said out of the question, out of the question, he is completely out of sync with the American public. And there's, a, uh, you know, these Christian Zionists who actually there we have more Christian Zionists in the United States than there are Jewish people in the world. And not all, not every Jewish person, as we well know, is a Zionist. Right. I mean, so the, the, the tens and tens of millions of these Christian Zionists just here in the U.S. And Mike Johnson is Mike Johnson is one of them. And what do they believe? Well, they believe that Israel is necessary to bring about the end of days, to bring about Armageddon, to fill the prophecies that are contained in the last book of the New Testament, Revelations. You need Israel to create this uh, the situation where the Messiah can return. And what does that mean for the for, for Jewish people, though? It means either they convert to Christianity or they go to hell. So all these Christian nationalists, these Christian Zionists who are such big supporters and fans of Israel, when you actually pull apart and look into what do they actually mean? What are their intentions here? Well, it means that they want Armageddon. They want the apocalypse. And what does that mean for their good friends in Israel? Well, that means either they accept Jesus or they Go to hell. I'm not how sure. Does I'm any, how does any of this? How does any of this affect uh, the criticisms of President um, or, or Prime Minister Netanyahu? Either 
for failing to protect the state of Israel and the Jewish people on October 7th or for engaging in war crimes? I think the Israelis have to be nervous because even though they're 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 uh, able to carry out this ethnic cleansing, they're able to carry out the, these war crimes and these slaughters and the United States sends weapons and bombs and material on a corner or Pentagon a near daily basis to Israel to allow them to do this. They must be looking at the public opinion numbers and, and seeing that the support in the United States is slipping and that this blank check may not be forever. And have we gone too far? Because this is not just because of what's happening now. Uh, support for Israel has been slipping for years. And a lot of it has because is because people can see what's happening. People can see videos. They can, they, they can see reporting of how th it is apartheid that's occurring there. This is a brutal occupation. People are being subjugated and that these war crimes of the last 41 days or just the latest rendition on top of that. And so support for Israel has been declining. And I think it accelerates because what you have now is you have people who heard this criticism about it, and now they see it right in front of them and there's no getting away from it. So what you see is you see in this in, in the latest public opinion that less than, you know, only 31% of Americans say that the United States should be sending weapons to Israel. Only 32% of Americans say that we should be supporting Israel. Most Americans are saying we should either be supporting the Palestinians or we should be a neutral arbitrator. So if if you're the Israelis, you have to be aware of that. And you have to look at it and say, right. you know, it's not just because of this last month, but it's because of how we have conducted ourselves, including how Netanyahu has so pompously and arrogantly strutted around the world for the last couple of decades, alienating people with his smugness as they we as people watch what we have been doing to the Palestinians. So the the Israeli people have had a compact with the government of Israel that it would have their backs figuratively and literally that it would protect them and it appears that that compact was shattered on October 7th. Here is uh Prime Minister Netanyahu last Sunday so 5 days ago uh, on CNN being asked the very simple question, as you can imagine, he's asked it several times because he doesn't give a direct answer, but his, his response is very telling. Will you take responsibility for October 7th? The one thing they want to hear from you is that you take personal responsibility for failing to prevent the October 7th attacks and protecting your people. I know you say the time for that will come after the war. Why won't you take responsibility now? I've already addressed that many times. And I said this whole question will be addressed after the war. Why Just as people now? would ask, well, did people ask Franklin Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor that question? Did people ask George Bush after the surprise attack of November 11th? Look, it's a question that needs to be asked. I think and those these questions, questions will were be asked. asked. And I've said, and I've said, I've said that one, one thing that is important, is, and I've said we're going to answer all these questions, including me. I'm going to be asked tough questions. Right now, I think what we have to do is unite the country for one purpose, one purpose alone, and that is to achieve victory. That's what I did. We formed a unity government uh, where the country is united as never before, and I think that's what we have to pursue. And what the people expect me to do right now is two things. One, achieve this victory and bring the hostages back, and second, assure that Gaza never becomes And two Israelis Israel who again. are disappointed that you still won't take responsibility, you say? 
Well, I said that I'm going to answer all the questions that are required, including the questions of responsibility. There'll be enough time for that after the war. Let's focus on victory. That's my responsibility now. A true leader would say, I dropped the ball. It won't happen again, and I'm going to take care of it forever. But he's he's not, it's not in his character. No, no, he won't. And, and, and uh, I think a lot of us uh, suspect that he hopes after he has finished with Gaza that he'll be able to do something else to keep him from having to answer those questions so that well, once he Gaza, has to answer those questions he's out of office correct yeah i, I mean maybe, i think maybe, and maybe we'll lose his personal freedom depending upon how the the government that succeeds him views this i mean he is widely disliked except that he is well liked within this far-right coalition that he's been able to assemble um so is he going to be able to push forward things say there's say there is a, a you know aside from what's happening in gaza things there's a, a third intifada say in uh the west bank and things get very uh, in, unstable and dangerous violent there uh, it already is but say it gets to the point where israelis feel very threatened say something happens with hezbollah increased tensions with syria and iran turkey is is saying we're going to get a nuclear weapon now because we can't be in a position in the future to not be able to intervene in something like this i mean would that be the type of thing he's looking for to solidify his position make it so that he can push forward i'm talking about him pushing forward things just like the judicial reforms last year things for him to keep himself in power whereas we can't remove the prime minister we can't have elections as long as we're in this state of emergency so similar to say what zelensky is doing in ukraine there will not be elections in 2024 as long as this crisis is going on as long as this war is going on we will not have elections i mean that may be the type of thing he's thinking of but he certainly has no interest and will never will uh, based upon not just we say now, I think, but, but, but if you've been observing him for these decades, will ever put himself in the position where he has to answer for what happened October 7th. And very clearly, the majority of Israelis seem to feel that he is the one who's responsible. Haaretz, which is, I don't believe, the largest newspaper in Israel, but I believe it's the oldest newspaper in Israel, uh, you know, immediately after uh, those attacks on October 7th came out and said, this is the responsibility of the prime minister, not just in terms of what his duties are, you know, as the prime minister of the country, but because of Netanyahu's specific policies over these decades, that is what brought us to this point. And I think most Israelis agree with that. Because he held himself out as that he and he alone could protect the state of Israel and the Israeli people, and he failed to do so. Right. And you see it. You see it. It's almost uh, messianic, you know, in, in a way that, again, Zelensky was described. So yeah. in the way that he talks about civilization versus barbarism and the way he speaks to the West, he seems to be appealing more to the West than he is to his own people. Again, similar to Zelensky, hoping that we're the ones who are going to keep him in power. If I am not here, he is saying these barbarians, these hordes will attack you next. So they are, in effect, a modern Sparta. And he sees himself, you know, at that as the person who is holding back this terror, uh, this evil, uh, these hordes of barbarians from the West in language that is remarkably similar to what we hear from Zelensky. 
would, would not the uh, Israeli people, probably half of whom are secular Jews, have approved overwhelmingly surgical incursions into Gaza to get the hostages out and to kill the Hamas leaders rather than this massive carpet bombing killing of civilians? There was a, a poll last week uh, from an Israeli newspaper that showed more than two-thirds of Israelis supported pauses to conduct a, 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 a prisoner exchange, a hostage swap. Uh, and I believe that that's where the Israeli sentiment is, is that they want to see the hostages return. I want to see the hostages return. I think uh, unless you're 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 a fairly depraved person, you want to see those people brought back to their families and their families relieved of that suffering. Just as right. I, and I say that, just as I want to see the the thousands of Palestinians who are being held in Israeli prisons, that, that they be free, that they be returned right. to their families. Right. I think everyone right. who is not depraved feels that way. And so certainly I think the Israelis looking at what's occurring to their their hostages, understanding what brought them to this point and then seeing that the concern of the prime minister, the concern of this cabinet of the of the Israeli military is not getting the hostages back, but is punishing of of, of the Palestinians launching this punitive expedition, you know, trying to subjugate them and eradicate Hamas. And I think many Israelis who've lived through decades of this also understand the complete folly of that. There is no eradication of a resistance by military means. All you do is strengthen it and make it more extreme. So Hamas 2.0 that follows this will be worse than what they have what they have now. I think that's how many Israelis look at it. And so that all adds up into this, this animosity, this anger and this hatred toward Netanyahu. And remember that you know, it wasn't so long ago, several months ago, the Israeli people were going out in the streets. They have, what, about 8 million people in Israel and about a million of them were going out in the streets to protest Netanyahu and his government's judicial reforms. So right. he was already incredibly unpopular. It was already in a very unstable government. And that's why I, I, I think that he is going to do everything he can to stay in there through whatever types of of legislative uh, reforms or mechanisms or tricks he can to keep himself in power because he certainly, uh, people don't want him there any longer. Matt Ho, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thanks for your, uh, for your insight and for your courage. We'll uh, hopefully see you again. We have a short week next week, but hopefully we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. All the best. Thanks, Judge. At uh, 3 o'clock Eastern, uh, Professor Michael Rechtenwald on whatever happened to the freedom of speech huh, in America. Judge Napolitano for judging freedom.